We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Of all the topics we've covered on this show, Southern accents got some of the most comments. Many of you told us on social media that you're proud of your roots and don't try to sound otherwise. Others say that they felt stereotyped as a hick, an image reinforced by shows like the Beverly Hillbillies. This here is a Clampett place. I'm Jed Clampett, my young and Ellie Mae, and Granny. Granny says you've been doing some wildcatting. Then there's no need to. Mr. Clampett, that swamp of yours is full of oil. I could have told you that. Well, my company would like to pump it out. Yeah, I'd like that too, but I just can't afford to have it done. <laughs> we picked up the topic with Marie Cochran, director of the Afrolatcha Artist Project, and Chuck Reese, host of the Bitter Southerner podcast. We're revisiting that conversation when we introduced Marie and Chuck to each other. You'll hear that they hit it off, and Marie will be a guest for the premiere episode of the podcast's second season, available on November 15th. The topic? Southern accents. But back to that conversation. Chuck opened it up by weighing in on the Beverly Hillbillies. Well, for me, it's hard not to think of it as indelible because I grew up with it. I was born in 1961, and it's one of the earliest television shows I remember watching. But, you know, I I didn't really know too many people like Jed and, and Granny, you know. And uh, even though I grew up in a small rural town, if anything, we had a little more in common with uh, the Mayberry of the Andy Griffith show. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is, you know, arguably the, the, the pioneering show of, of, you know, what I refer to now as hillbilly TV. Uh -huh. But, you know, that is a trope about the South that has never gone away since the advent of television. I mean, we've, it comes all the way up through things like Duck Dynasty. Right. And Dukes of Hazard, Hee Haw, all that kind of thing. How about for you, Marie? Did you ever see families that looked or acted like yours on, in media growing up? Well, first of all, I have to say that you paired us perfectly because I was born in 1962. Perfect. All right. In Georgia. And so um, these are parts of my childhood and you know when I the first paragraph that I put in my essay was that I simultaneously had a crush on John Boy of the Waltons and Michael of Good Times. <laughs> so go. the thing was I had pretty much to um, see reflections of myself in those two different shows that didn't adequately um, reflect what my experience was but just um, piggybacking on what Chuck said also, my favorite shows to for entertainment were Soul Train and Hee Haw. Mm -hmm. There at you the go. At the same time. Well, and Marie, you also write in your piece about what happens when you introduce as yourself as a person from Appalachia. So what kind of responses do you get? All right, here we go. <laughs> if they're um, white folks, even some people who don't know me, who meet me, they'll ask me where I'm from. And then they'll ask me, okay, but how long have you lived here? And I said, I was born and raised in Stevens County. Then if they're black friends of mine from wherever, but specifically, let's say, Atlanta, they'll say, oh, you're the only family there. Mm. And that's how it was when I grew up. And unfortunately, that's still the way it is now. Well, Chuck, this is something that you also came up against when you were working in a magazine in New York City. You know, how do people respond when they heard your accent from the South? Not that uh, we're going to get to the race thing in just a second. Well, I, you know, when, when I first moved to New York City to go to work for Adweek magazine in 1984, um, you know, anytime anyone heard me talk, 
I mean, you can't go to New York with a twang like mine and not be made no. fun of. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, I did find it interesting after a while because, you know, I was up there the first time I lived there for five years and you learn how to adapt. But, I, you know, I adapted while keeping my accent because I just couldn't get rid of it. I mean, you know, the only place I would ever try is when I was ordering a bagel or a sandwich at a deli because it seemed to help if I tried to talk a little faster, you know, plain bagel, toasted, schmear. I'm I'm not convinced. Yeah, please do. Yeah, because I wanted, I'm glad that you talked about the whole idea of leaving our home, our rural communities to go to urban communities, because even as you were asking me about, you know, how people reacted to finding out that I was from, you know, the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, they didn't believe me because I don't have the twang. Hmm. And so it's not even about just the issue of race. I mean, I didn't try to get rid of it. I listen to a lot of public television, and I blame Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and I wish I had the twang. So, you know, you know, this whole, you know, sort of interweaving between expectations and reality, I think, is really what Chuck and I, you know, are dealing with in the work that we do. Yeah, so, but but you write, uh, Marie, I'm a black Southerner, and my experience, while it defies the white hillbilly stereotype, is assuredly Appalachian. Do you think Appalachian reads white? Always. Yeah, but you not, do. Not, not always forever because of the word Afrolatcha. When Frank <laughs> X. Walker and the group of Kentucky writers um, have not only, you know, put it in the dictionary and won various awards and created these incredible careers. But when I met Frank X. Walker um, eight years ago in Asheville, North Carolina, I asked him, I said, you know, what's going on? At the time, they were, you know, blowing up. The Carolina Chocolate Drops had, you know, were performing. They hadn't won the Grammy yet. I met them before, um, you know, they became famous. You knew when. Um, I knew him when. But the thing was, you know, I asked him about visual art, and he said, do something with visual art, and that's why I created this network of creatives. But um, the thing is, you know, all of that is changing with this new generation of professionals and, um, you know, activists and, you know, people who really just know what their lived experience is. Because I didn't, you know, even say this, but, you know, I would assume, and this is something I'm going to explore, that my white friends, you know, were watching Soul Train, too, and mm-hmm. because they sure were listening to Bill Rice, Mr. Rice, the Rice Man, play his soul, you know, radio show on Saturdays on WNEG, so people don't acknowledge the back and forth. They acknowledge that the banjo has African roots, but they don't talk about these lived experiences that we have. Well, as director of the Afrolatcha Artist Project, you connect, support artists of color to keep the history of this region alive. You mentioned the band, the Carolina Chocolate Drop, so here's just a little bit of their song, Cornbread and Butter Beans. Marie, what do you think the history of black Appalachian artists and residents not generally part of the story told about the region? It doesn't fit a commercial um, perspective. 
and I think Chuck, again, could, you know, echo this. Um, we have edited out the good stuff. And, you know, we really have to talk, because it is complicated. Um, it's layered, and sometimes it's you know, contradicts itself. Dixie, as a song, was written by black people. Now, we won't even get into that. Um, but I'm just dropping it in so your readers and listeners, excuse me, listeners can um, go back and look it up. Um, but when the Carolina Chocolate Drops performed on stage, they would do these little interludes and give out that information because not everybody goes to college and gets a Ph.D. in anthropology or cultural studies. And we need to get the word out. That's absolutely right, you know, because there's if you look back into the history of Appalachia, even though there was the de facto racial segregation, there was also de facto racial integration in places, too. Right. And you hear it most in the music. And and when you dig back into the history of that Appalachian string band music, what you realize is that it was something that was created by Scots-Irish immigrants and by African-American people. Poor people. Poor people. It's poor people's music. And, you know, even though you might be a white kid who grows up in Appalachia listening to bluegrass music and you think that the banjo is a bluegrass instrument it's the white man's instrument but it's not and once you learn that you start making connections that you didn't and that's you know i think that's the the thing that that is true no matter uh what part of the south's troublesome history you look at you you find when you really dig in you find more places where we were together across the racial barriers than you were probably aware of mm-hmm. before. And and to go back to your point, Marie, yeah, those were my two entertainment shows. Exactly. Hee-haw <laughs> and Soul Train, and that's why to this day I still have a stack of stylistics, Harold Melvin yes. and the Blue Notes, and OJ's 45s on my shelf. Uh-huh. And, and I love Dolly Parton, and I love Buck Owens, and, you know, as much. I mean, and, you know, we're, we're putting a lot of information out there, and I hope, you know, I'm just loving the conversation, but when I moved to North Carolina, because I had these feelings that something wasn't really being explained well. I mean, I always thought, okay, my Atlanta friends, you know, aren't quite getting me. You know, um, my, you know, other friends might think that, okay, where we're from is backward and isn't it grand that I'm a UGA grad and I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago and, you know, I've left these humble beginnings, but it's my home. Um, but when I went um, and got a job at, in North Carolina, I met Jeff Biggers, and I'm looking at his book right now, The United States of Appalachia, because that's really what I riffed off of when I wrote the essay. And it says how Southern mountaineers brought independence, culture, and enlightenment to America. And when I read this book that told me that Nina Simone, Bill Withers, etc., were from my region, and then later met Frank X. Walker, it all came together for me. It really did. You're listening to my earlier conversation with Marie Cochran, director of the Afrolatcha Artist Project, and Chuck Reese, host of GPB's Bitter Southerner podcast. Season two premieres on November 15th with an entire show dedicated to Southern accents. 
Leonard Henry says, for dumb Southerners, we certainly lead the rest of the country in the number of excellent writers we produce. We also lead the country in Medal of Honor recipients. My wife is placed, it was placed in a remedial class in New York City as a child because she was stereotyped for her Southern accent. But what they didn't appreciate being rather narrow-minded was that she was the granddaughter of one of America's most famous poets and a genius. So we're talking about the artistic tradition. You were talking about music just then, but also literary tradition. So I'm just wondering, you know, for you, Chuck, you're an editor of the Bitter Southerner magazine, so you're trying to expand the definition of how people think about the South. But at the same time, uh, you know, how do you make distinctions? Uh, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, like, I don't know, something prototypically old Southern seeming about whether you whether you propagate that or you give it attention or you're just saying, like, this is part of it all. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that question is, but I wonder if you can pick up on it. Uh, I, I think so. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the thing that. Well, the thing that I, I have definitely found over the five and a half years we've been publishing this thing, there's this phenomenon that's happening all across the South and has been happening for a good many years now, which is that our region is full of people in cities who live city kinds of lives. These cities are populated by so many of us who grew up with distinctly rural roots. Right. We may not have done the thing that so many Southerners have done and, and left the region for good, but you know, if we're still here, we come to the city and our minds expand and we start looking at the world in different ways. And, you know, if somebody comes up to me with some old South stuff today, it's I mean, I kind of just write it all off mm -hmm. because so much of it is based on things that we were taught in the public schools. You know, I mean, there's no doubt that the original sin of the South was slavery. Right. Another second wave original sin was we spent 100 years teaching our children that we did not fight a war over slavery. Mm -hmm. There you go. Which was a lie. I mean, we were literally all taught. You know, I hear countless stories. I've heard them ever since we started of people, you know, saying that when they chose slavery on a high school quiz as the cause of the Civil War, they got an, an X on mm -hmm. their answer, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's just the truth. An essay that ta Coates wrote immediately after uh, the, the shootings at uh, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston a few years ago. He quoted from several of the Confederate states' secession declarations, including Georgia's. You don't have to read more than a paragraph into any of those things to find out that the war was really fought over the ability of the states to hold slaves. I read it for the first time when I was 54. And I want to add something to what um, Chuck just said. I just got back from the Appalachian Studies Association conference in Asheville, and they showed the new documentary called Hillbilly. Everybody in that room cried, including me. Why? Why? Because it hit home in so many ways. As we said earlier, these acts that have happened through public education or, you know, uh, elected officials meant to divide poor people. Because ultimately, when these poor people come together, they make music, they make babies. 
<laughs> they make community. Um, you know, all of these things happen. And, you know, we could go into all kinds of theories about, you know, the whys of that. But um, we need to really come together because we have so much in common. And that's the richness of the South. Marie Cochran there, director of the Afrolatcha Artist Project. She's written a lot about what it's like to be African-American and growing up in Appalachia. Chuck Reese is editor of The Bitter Southerner and host of The Bitter Southerner podcast. Season two premieres November 15th, and the entire issue will be talking about Southern accents. Before we go, I want to invite you to some community events where I will be live and in person this week. Tonight, I'm part of the Pop-Up Zine Atlanta show of performed journalism. That's at the Windmill Arts Center in East Point. On Thursday, I'll be on stage with podcast host and best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell at the First Center for the Arts in Atlanta. He's the one who introduced the Tipping Point Rule, and his new book is called Talking to Strangers, about the tragic results of miscommunication. On Saturday, I'll be in Shelman, Georgia for the Boudlow Bryant Festival. Festival, and back on Sunday, October 13th, to talk with MSNBC host Rachel Maddow about her new book, Blowout. It is super timely, and there's a lot of explaining there about the geopolitical tension in Ukraine, among other things. We'll be at the Fox Theater. That's again in Atlanta on Sunday. A whole lot to digest, but we've made it easy for you. You can get details at gpbnews.org or on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Meanwhile, back on the radio tomorrow at 9 with more of On Second Thought, or you can listen to the podcast anytime. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is GPB.